Welcome to Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I'm delighted to be joined by Father Ronald Rollheiser, who is a specialist in the field of spirituality and is currently president of the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. He's the author of The Holy Longing, The Restless Heart, Forgotten Among the Lilies, The Shattered Lantern, and Against the Infinite Horizon. He writes a weekly column that appears in more than 90 Catholic publications. With Father Ronald Rollheiser, we go inside the pages of Our One Great Act of Fidelity, Waiting for Christ in the Eucharist, published by Doubleday Religion. Father, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Our One Great Act of Fidelity. Thank you so much for compiling it. Well, it's, it's, it's a short book, and it was quite simply written, but it, it actually expresses the journey of a lifetime and also my theological insights of a lifetime. So it's, it's simple, but it's a long journey. And as I say with the title, Chris, that uh, title was carefully chosen, and I'm, I'm not sure your readers all know where I got it from, but it's from Ronald Knox, the famous British theologian, who once just reflected on all the Christian churches. And I, and I very much resonate with that. And he says, you know, when we, and, and are reflective and honest, we have to admit we've never truly been faithful to Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in key ways, we haven't loved our enemies. We don't turn the other cheek. There's so many ways that we don't do what Jesus does in terms of forgiveness and some of the really deeper things. Said, but we've been faithful in this one thing. The night before he left, Jesus says, I want you to keep the Eucharist going till I come back. And through 2,000 years, essentially all the churches, we've kept that going. And the end, that's going to be enough. In the end, this is what's going to save us, because what the Eucharist does then, that act calls us back to precisely turn the other cheek to the other things that Jesus asks of us. But, and it's something we can do. See, you can't always feel forgiveness. You, can't, you don't always have the strength to do certain things, but you do have the strength to walk into a church and, uh, and go to a Eucharist. You know, it's something, and so it anchors us. That's... Um, it's a great anchor, ultimately, for all the Christian churches. It's an extraordinary mystery. I think, as you put it in the book, the Eucharist as an intensification of our unity within the body of Christ, totus Christus. Yeah. That in itself says so much, doesn't it? Yeah, and in fact, the Church has celebrated the feast of what we call Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. And part of that is that the body of Christ was the body of Jesus, historically, but it's also the Eucharist, but it's also the Christian community, so that, you know, it's, it's kind of like a flow. The historical Christ flows into the Eucharist, the Eucharist flows into the Christian community, and as St. Paul says, we all are the body of Christ. So when we go to Eucharist, one of the major reasons we go to Eucharist is to uh, intensify that. Mm-hmm. So that, for instance, when, when the priest or the minister says the Eucharistic words, this is my body, this is my blood, they're also talking about the people, not just the bread and wine that changes, you know. They're asking the bread and wine to become the body and blood of Christ, but they're also asking this community. They're asking us to become the body and blood of Christ. And as I mentioned in the Gospel, St. Augustine, the great, great Church Father, uh, you know, who transcends denominations, who is claimed by every denomination, mm-hmm. um, but when Augustine gave Eucharist for the first time, you know, when somebody was receiving communions for the first time, he wouldn't say the body of Christ. He would say, receive what you are. This is what you are, that we are the body of Christ. So that partly Eucharist is to, in, to make us aware of that, to celebrate it, to intensify it, um, 
it's, 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 a, it's a real deep act of communion. I love the fact that you shared so many personal things in the book, but also you're just your great love of being able to enter into that Eucharistic uh, mystery every day. Uh, being a daily communicant is essential to who you are. Yeah, that, as I say in the preface, that, 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 partly it's my Roman Catholicism and partly it's my genes. I was raised in, in, in a strong Eucharistic community where, say, for instance, my parents, that was their ideal. And, you know, it's kind of almost bred into me, uh, but then reinforced later on in my theological studies and, and my, my own understanding of the Eucharist and so on. Just that, as I say in the book, even Scripture that isn't, you know, there are different understandings of the Eucharist. This one is based more particularly on John's Gospel, where in John, among other things, John connects the Eucharist to the manna. See, when the people were in the desert, mm-hmm. they had to be fed from heaven every day, but literally for them. I mean, literally, they, they had to get the stuff that flaked down from heaven for them to eat. And John takes that as one of the images of the Eucharist, that, you know, like, this is the new manna. It's God's daily food for us. You know, we're, we're meant to, to eat daily at that. Yeah, I think it, you... Uh you phrase it as a way of, it's like a ritual meal that we need to be fed, that that's our, it, it aids in our healing. Yeah, and, and as well, as I say in the book, and for me it's also one of the, the key things I, I tried to put, I'm sure you got the underlying emphasis all the time, that see that there's a radical physicalness to the Eucharist. See that, you know, the churches, we've always agreed, we haven't always agreed on how, which is to be emphasized at a given moment, but, but see what Christ left us is the Word, at the Eucharist. So we have Scripture, and we have Christ's Word, and that nurtures us. But words are words. See, the Eucharist is something physical. I quote in there uh, Andre Dubas, the, the, the novelist who died some years ago, and he says, I go to Eucharist whenever I can, he said, because without Eucharist, God becomes a monologue. Mm. So that, uh, you know, we, we are fed by words, and even with each other. You know, words connect us, but as I say in there, the, the, the Eucharist Physically, it's like, it's like God's physically embraced. Imagine yourself going to a funeral, a very sad funeral, and you come in and you greet the parents, the person who's died, or the spouse, whoever, and, you know, we try to say words, you know, I'm sorry, and you, but, but, you know, we realize then the inadequacy of words, you know, like, mm-hmm. what do you say that's going to make any difference? But we're not inadequate, so what you do is you embrace the person, this deep, empathic hug, and the physical touch says what we can't say in words. In fact, that's my, my essential metaphor, image for the Eucharist. See, it's God's, Christ's physical touch. But then we also speak words. Christ gave us the Word and all the teachings and so on, and words have a relative power, but we also know that there's something deeper than words, and that's physical touch. Mm-hmm. And so the Eucharist is the physical touch. As Dubas says, without Eucharist, God eventually becomes a monologue, mm-hmm. only a word. We're talking with Father Ronald Rollheiser, the author of Our One Great Act of Fidelity. And, of course, in these reflections on the Eucharist, there, the Eucharist as a sacrifice is something that, you know, Father, I think sometimes we forget just what it is, that dimension of it, for many of us, that, that role, image of sacrifice. Yeah, um, and in fact, other than more recent, I mean, in Roman Catholic circles, oftentimes that doesn't get emphasized. And one of the reasons it doesn't get emphasized is it's the hardest part to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, um, for instance, the single hardest section of this book to write was the section on sacrifice. Um, not because it isn't important, 
but sacrifice is something we understand more in our gut than our head. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, we don't have a, a slick, clear kind of phenomenology of sacrifice. And so, you know, I, I approach it in terms of, like, we, we have a sense of what that word means in, in ordinary life, you know. Mm-hmm. A mother sacrifices her career so her kids can, you know, to raise her kids, you know. She's giving up something that somebody else benefits. You make a sacrifice by, you know, tithing and giving, you know, a tenth of your, your check to the poor or to the church or whoever, and that means you have to give up something somebody else benefits, okay? Mm-hmm. And we see Christ's death was a sacrifice. But pardon me, I want to insert another image. One of the images I use, because when I studied this in anthropology, it was very helpful. And they see what, what sacrifice does, it's not so much that, for instance, when we sacrifice towards God in prayer and giving up stuff, it's not that God needs that. We need to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, so that we, because by doing it, we... we we, we make ourselves realize that it's gift. So the, the classical example is a farmer. Imagine a farmer grows some grain, okay? Mm-hmm. He harvests his grain, but, you know, like in, in, in Old Testament times, so on, at the time of Jesus, if you were a pious Jewish farmer, you wouldn't eat a kernel of that wheat before you first took some and burned it in sacrifice to God. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it wasn't so much, I mean, they burned it because they believed the smoke literally went up to heaven. And it wasn't so much that God needs that, but by sacrificing it, we make ourselves aware this is a gift from God, you know? Mm-hmm. And then when we actually do eat it, we'll appreciate it more. It's a little bit, I mean, a very simple thing, a grace before meals. Mm-hmm. I'm sure people aren't different than I am. If, if I don't pray before meals, I don't fully appreciate my food. Right. You know, I gulp it. Um, non-reflectively. If I pray deeply before a meal, I make myself aware that that this is gift. It's a marvelous privilege to eat. This is good food. It's, you know, and if you simply enter into it much deeper uh, and see so that if you put those two concepts together, you know, the way Jesus died for us, you know, uh, the ultimate mother sacrificing life for the community, you know, but also um, giving back to God to realize the great gift of that. Um, okay, now that doesn't translate e- easily because partly it, it's also mystery. It's a deep mystery. Uh, but it's a very, very important part of the Eucharist. The Eucharist uh, in Roman Catholicism, uh, we've always emphasized that very strongly, sometimes too strongly. Sometimes we had to eclipse some of the other parts of the, the Eucharist but it's, uh, and Protestantism on reverse sometimes didn't emphasize it strongly enough. Mm-hmm. The Protestantism would emphasize the, you know, the day that the feeding, you know, the other aspects, the intensification of community, and would neglect the sacrifice. But, uh, but it's the most difficult part of the Eucharist to understand with our heads. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when we go to Eucharist, we get it in our gut. We get a sense that, you know, uh, we kind of, know what that means without being able to, to simply explain it. Oh, I, I think that it's well said, Father, because I don't know how before I could have ever been bored. I, I'm ashamed to say that I was, but in my younger years, but how I ever could have gotten bored during the celebration of the Mass, and in particular the Eucharistic part, because there's so much happening if we really present ourselves when we're really listening when we're really participating in it i mean in just 
th that memorial aspect of the Paschal mystery, when you really ponder that, and I think you do such a beautiful job of that in that section of the book, where you talk about that memorial of the Paschal mystery. I, I wonder, and I know I didn't, so I wonder if maybe some other people out there don't appreciate what the, the Paschal mystery truly is. Okay, let me answer that. But first, first let me say also a word to boredom. I mean, um, forgive yourself for being human. <laughs> okay, no, you no, say so. No, no, no human being can sustain kind of passionate intensity for a long time. I mean, it's, you know, mm -hmm. I mean we can't do it in love, in marriage, or whatever. Sooner or later, uh, I mean, we, we simply aren't built to be passionately, you know, um, you know, uh, unbored and intense all the time, right? Their psyches won't take it. So Eucharist will at times be boring, <clears throat> but boring, I hope, as I say later on, as kind of a ritual, the way somebody goes to an AA meeting. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds the same, something deep is happening under the surface, even though, on the, you know, on the surface, things sound, you know, bland, okay? Right. But in terms of the Paschal Mystery, again, with sacrifice, and you're, 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 <laughs> I, I appreciate your questions because you're wading into the deeper more difficult parts, which mm -hmm. it's, it's helpful to emphasize. Next to the sacrifice, this is the next most difficult part of the Eucharist to get, and, and a lot of people simply certainly don't get this explicitly. They might have some sense in it. Mm -hmm. But see, when we go to Eucharist, um, you know, in, in any church, say Roman Catholic, but, you know, Protestant churches have it, you always have three parts to this. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. You have a you know, a, 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 a liturgy of the word for scripture, and you know we, you have readings, and there's a homily and some singing, and you celebrate Christ, God's word. Okay, and then we move to the Eucharist, but before we get to the communion, see where we actually receive the body and blood of Christ, we have well, you know the the, the consecration prayers. Okay, mm -hmm. and um, and oftentimes people don't get the place of that, you know. And, and they think it's only about receiving communion. But no, communion is the climax of this. But the consecration prayers are more than just prayers to, uh, you know, you know, uh, consecrate the bread and wine. They're prayers to make present the Paschal Mystery, so the great events of Christ's life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the Pentecost. Um, and see if the Jewish have that in their Passover supper. That's we're making zikar on. We're making memorial, but more than remembering it, the idea is, as these words are being read and said, we are going through those events. We're making the events re-present to participate. So, kind of the analogy I use, not analogy, it's, it's, it's the parallel. Mm -hmm. at, a, at a Jewish Passover supper, at a certain point, the father of the family, the presider, in this case would be the priest or the minister, stands up and from memory tells the story of them going through the Red Sea and Pharaoh being drowned and so on. But as he's saying this, it's more than just, you know, like, you know, telling a story. The people at the table believe that they are now, this is happening to them ritually, symbolically, but really. Well, it's the same thing when the priest or the minister says, we recall Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the Spirit at Pentecost and so on. The idea is, this is happening anew. This is happening timelessly. This is something we're now participating in. So we're, we're not just, as I put it, and I hope I didn't put it too crassly, we don't just have the consecration to get Christ's body to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also entering into the event. 
reminds you that there's an event happening, uh, and that's hard to be conscious of. Like you said, it's kind of, you know, the priest reads his office, and, you know, minute and a half. We recall Christ's passion, death, resurrection, ascension. Uh, and, uh, but, when, but it's one of the neglected aspects of the Eucharist, but, as you said, one of the rich, deep aspects. Well, and it is it, in that wonderful chapter, too, that the Eucharist is the priestly prayer of Christ. And the role of the celebrant, your role as the, the priest who is offering that for us, it, you're actually very much united with us, and it is on our behalf that you offer this great gift back to the Father, and he gives it back to us. Very much, and, and, and when I emphasize the priestly prayer of Christ, it's very important that it's not the priestly prayer of the priest. Mm-hmm. It's the priestly prayer of Christ, so that you can... Uh, doesn't matter which priest or minister is celebrating, it's Christ who's the true minister. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's not, for instance, I'm a priest, I preside Eucharist, I presided Eucharist this morning, but that isn't my prayer, that's Christ's prayer. It isn't me praying for the world, it's Christ praying for the world. And actually that, that's good to know both for the priest and the people. First of all, it takes pressure off the priest, so it's not so much how intense or how much I can concentrate it's going to give, concentrate it's going to give that prayer power, it's Christ's sacrifice. And the same with a parishioner going to church, it's not whether Father was really alert or half asleep or, or uh, very dynamic or phlegmatic on a given morning. I mean, that's helpful humanly, but it's still, this is Christ's prayer. The, the power of Eucharist comes not from the person presiding or how good the singing is or the homily, although those things are important things. The power of the Eucharist comes from Christ. He left said, do this in memory of me with the implication... I will be there, and uh, I, I will be forming you into a people. That's why I think, Father, it's, it's heartbreaking when we have that sense that it is Christ that's present. It's the prayer of Christ, and it's the gift of himself to us when we see our brothers and sisters walk away from the Eucharist because they have been hurt by someone in the clergy, or they have been they're angry at a position of the church and there that sense that i no longer wish to participate in this great offering of christ himself that's that's a real tragic heartbreak for the church isn't it yeah it's a tragic heartbreak for everybody i mean it's tragic for the church but it's also tragic for the person leaving the person who's leaving is letting some human person get between them and of the vehicles of God's grace, and it's, it's tragic for, for everybody. You know, it, it, it's, it's a hard thing to break. One of my favorite philosophers, Christian philosophers, Michael Buckley, I remember seeing a line once that just simply stunned me, because I realized it's true, and he says, all, you know, to, at a wider level, he said, almost all atheism is a reaction to bad theism. So mm-hmm. almost all atheists are reacting to bad religion. You know, he said, they're not rejecting God, they're rejecting false notions of God as, you know, certain individuals or people presented. Well, what you're seeing right now, that's true. It's so sad. So many people have been turned away by the, from the Eucharist by bad Eucharist, by bad presiders, by bad whatever, people who betray something or just aren't human enough, aren't compassionate enough, don't radiate Christ's... Uh, and so it, it becomes hard to believe that this human instrument is actually... Christ's instrument, and that Christ is behind there, you know, providing the power and the grace. It's hard for us, for all of us, I say it very sympathetically, to, to get beyond the surface. You know, the surface is what 
we have a, here at our institution that's so true. You know, we have a, a wonderful receptionist, and we say in the university she's the most important single person in the institution because that's who people are meeting. That's the first face. Mm-hmm. If you come to the door of an institution and you get a cold shoulder, you're going to think badly of the institution. Right. You know, and right. it, it's, it's the receptionist you're meeting, not the, the faculty and staff and all kinds of stuff. But it's the same. It's it's the priest or minister you're meeting. The real depth is Christ. But but that we're the receptionist. We can put people off. Mm-hmm. We can put people off on Christ. And we're talking with Father Ronald Rollheiser about his book our one great act of fidelity, and of course, it's reflections on the Eucharist. And, and it is, it, it's such a, a wonderful book, Father, because it, I think you show us just so many of the different facets of that beautiful diamond that's the Eucharist. One of those areas I think that is so important for us is that area of justice. You know, I don't mean to keep bringing up the, the tough ones for folks, but <laughs> that's for the Eucharist and its connection to justice is that encounter with the person of Jesus and what are we going to do about that? It, that's, that's, that's at the heart of it too, isn't it? Yeah, you know, Chris, i got to give you credit. You brought up the three hardest issues. <laughs> Sorry, Father. <laughs> but the third one is justice. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one, and a lot of people are unwilling to link that to the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're saying, well, it's just being dragged in because it's politically correct or whatever. But it's not the case at all because... The Eucharist is Christ, the continuation of Christ's presence, and Christ is so clear, you know, about, you know, that the poor. Remember, he says, whatsoever you do to them, you do to me. But but even in the early Eucharistic texts that you see in Paul and the epistles and in, and, and in the Acts of the Apostles and so on, notice that the, the apostles always challenging, there may not be distinctions, you know, the rich shouldn't sit one place, the poor another, but then also when you come to Eucharist, the rich have to give some of their, their monies to be taken to the poor, and there can't be any discriminatory, there can't be male, female, Jew, slave, free, just that, that, that complete leveling. Um, remember remember the, the example I used when I introduced that section, mm-hmm. and I forget who was the... Hilaire Belloc, I think it was, or something would be, when he was going to become a Christian. Mm-hmm. He, came, he came from this, this um, kind of very endowed, upper-class family, and what set, upset his mother the most, she said, if you, become, if you become a Roman Catholic and start going to the Eucharist, you're going to have to worship with the servants. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. that speaks the volume, you know, like, you're going to have to step down, you know, like, we, we don't worship with servants. But mm-hmm. notice, uh, that's not the correct view of the Eucharist. See, the Eucharist, in that sense, is the great equalizer, leveler. But not just that it levels us all and says, you know, the poor sit with the rich and the rich with the poor, but also it calls us out of our richness to share with the poor um, and calls us to be just people. So that, you know, if, if, if I go to Eucharist, but, um, but take, let's take a, a crass kind of an example, but a simplistic one, but suppose I'm a, a business person I own a business, but I'm not paying my workers just wages. Well, sooner or later, the Eucharist is going to push me to say, like, you shouldn't be doing this if you're not paying your wages, just wages to your to your laborers, you know? Mm-hmm. You know it, it's incongruous. You can't be at this table of equality and at this table of justice 
and not being equal in that, and, and you're being in, you know, unjust in your labor practice. Mm-hmm. So it's an aspect of the Eucharist that it takes a little courage to look at. Sometimes people don't want to look at it, but it's, it's truly a non-negotiable piece. It's, the Eucharist is is about justice. Well, it's the Eucharist isn't something that we take. It's a it's a gift that we share in. We I mean we're bringing something, we're offering yeah. and it's being transformed and from what you know, especially the, in what you've offered us and in, the, in reflections on this great gift uh, it just it, it's not to be taken lightly or taken selfishly. In fact, it, it, in the last part where I do uh, spirituality you Chris notice and I like what you're saying it's not to be taken I say actually it's never to be taken period. It's, meant to be received, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a whole different attitude or spirituality between taking something and receiving something. See, as I say, Adam and Eve took the apple. God was trying to give them life, you know, so that the, the great Eucharistic gesture is an open hand, you know, mm-hmm. an open hand that's waiting to receive, whereas that hand reaching out, taking something, is the un-Eucharistic hand, you know, the hand that's seizing something, so that... Uh, you know, that the Eucharistic gesture is, the whole thing is about receiving. You receive something, it's life is being given to you. You don't take life. I think you've helped us to lift our hearts up to the Lord. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That's, I, I take that as a, the best way, you know, when I understand gratitude, if someone says this help, hopefully it'll be a helpful book. Any final thoughts, Father? M- maybe just this. In the preface, I say that this is really a, a deeply personal book. I'm a theologian, I'm a spiritual writer. This is clearly the most personal book I ever wrote. I mean, I, I tried to use all the best insights of Scripture and of theologians and uh, church teachings and so on. But in the end, and, and I, I tried to give a, a wide, as we've been talking about, theology of the Eucharist, there's many dimensions. But in the end, the book is Apologia Pro Vita Sua. Kind of, it's a, me saying, this is why the Eucharist for me is so central to my life and who I am and why not a single day goes by and unless something comes up, I'm going to go to Eucharist. That how this is my faith anchor, and I share it with, with, with the larger community with the hope that it can become a, a faith anchor for a lot of people. Well, you make me want to rush to Mass right now. Well, that's the nicest thing you can say to me. <laughs> Father, thank you so much. Man, we ask for your priestly blessing. Okay. So, Lord, we, we ask you to look upon all Christians who celebrate Eucharist in the name of your Son, to bless us all, nurture us by the Eucharist, and find ways beyond our own divisions to lead us all back to one Eucharistic table so that all of us can be brothers and sisters in one church around one altar. And we pray this deeply through the prayer that Jesus has given us the Eucharist. Amen. Father Rollheiser, thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you so much for having me. We've been going inside the pages of Our One Great Act of Fidelity, Waiting for Christ in the Eucharist, with Father Ronald Rollheiser. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to doubledayreligion.com, the website for Doubleday Religion, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and download this discussion, along with many others, go to www.insidethepages.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.